This episode of The Serial Holic contains descriptions of disturbing graphic content, which may be offensive to some people. Listener discretion is advised. There are many things Americans think of when someone speaks of Australia. They see visions of the Great Barrier Reef off the coast of Queensland, the Opera House in Sydney, New South Wales, the art and fine cuisine of Melbourne, Victoria, the wine regions of South Australia, the beautiful collaboration of desert and pristine coastline in Western Australia, the Red Rock in the Northern Territory, the mountainous island of Tasmania, the memorials in Parliament in Australian Capital Territory, and of course, Americans think of kangaroos. Lots and lots of kangaroos. There's a specific area in Australia that many Americans have no idea exists. It's a vast area of planted pine mixed with native forestry covering about 3,800 hectares, or a little over 9,300 acres, located in the southern highlands of New South Wales, just southwest from the town of Barama. It's called the Belangolo State Forest. Mostly known for camping, hiking, and bike trails, in the late 80s and early 90s, Belangolo provided for another activity as well. And as you will learn, it is this activity you want absolutely nothing to do with. Murder. On September 19, 1992, two runners were navigating their way through the pines when they encountered a strong, putrid odor of death. And after further investigation, stumbled across the partially hidden, decomposed remains of a woman. The next day, another woman was found. Just over a year later, in October of 1993, a person searching for firewood came across human bones, and soon after, two more bodies were found. Then on November 1st, skeletal remains were found in a clearing on an old fire road, and finally, on November 4th, two shallow graves were discovered 50 meters apart. Where did these people come from, and what stories did they have to tell? It wasn't until a man from England came forward and detectives dusted off a key piece of evidence that the final moments of these seven people would shake the entire region to its core. Serial killers. I'm not a big serial killer, by the way. Eight, eight people, that's nothing. Murder. I wouldn't let me go, no. Because you kill again. More than positive. Mystery. I'm Dave Jari, and I am the Serial Holic. Twenty-four-year-old Paul Onions had recently left the Royal Navy when he decided he wanted another adventure and backpacked throughout Australia, with the possibility of getting a job and settling in. He took a flight from Birmingham, England, and flew to Sydney. When he arrived, he stayed in a youth hostel for a bit before deciding to hitchhike down the Hume Highway. It was January 25th, 1990. Paul stopped at a market to get a drink when a man named Bill approached him. Seeing that Paul was carrying his backpack, Bill asked him if he wanted a ride. Paul surveyed the situation, and Bill seemed like a very friendly man, so he accepted. The conversation between Paul and Bill was cordial for a good distance down the highway, and Paul noticed that Bill's demeanor began to change. Bill went from jovial, to agitated, to quiet, in what seemed like a minute. 
Paul recalls seeing the sign for Belangelo State Forest when Bill suddenly pulled a car to the side of the road, saying that he needed cassette tapes because the radio reception was bad. Paul thought this was awkward because there were tapes in between the seats. Bill stepped out of the car to reach under the seat and Paul stepped out to stretch his legs. Bill became excited and yelled at Paul to get back in the car. They both got back in, but Bill had to step out once again. That's when he pulled a gun on Paul and told him it was a robbery. Bill threw rope at him and told him to tie himself up. That's when Paul decided to make a run for it. He quickly escaped the vehicle and began running up the Hume Highway. Bill fired a shot at him but missed. As Paul was trying to stop oncoming vehicles, Bill caught up to him. After a brief struggle, Paul escaped his grasp and ran in front of a car to make it stop. He jumped into the car and begged for them to get him out of there. The driver of the car, Joanne Berry, first told Paul to get out of the car. But when she understood the seriousness of the situation, she put the car in reverse, turned around, and headed to the nearest police station. Both Paul and Joanne gave their statements to the police, but because they weren't aware of the true nightmares that were occurring in Belangola Forest, their statements were pushed to the wayside. In hindsight, this proved to be a deadly mistake, because the man that picked up Paul outside Sydney was not a man named Bill. He was a man who was very well known to the police. His real name? Ivan Milot. Ivan Milot was brought into this world on December 27, 1944, in Brosley Park, just west of Sydney. One of 14 children born to Stephen Milot, a migrant from Yugoslavia, and Margaret, a native Australian. When they first met in Guildford, New South Wales, Stephen was 32, Margaret, just 14 years old. Despite the age difference, they married two years later. The Malat children were raised in a weatherboard cottage with a dirt floor. Stephen worked long and hard as a wharf laborer to support his large family, leaving before the sun came up to cast a train into Sydney and came home when it was dark, which left him little time to truly be a father to his clan. They moved often with stops in Rossmore and Moorbank, where the whole family slept on mattresses on a dirt floor in a shed. Many of his children grew up to push the limits of the law, with Ivan making a name for himself as a juvenile. Known to display antisocial behavior, Ivan was sent to Boys Town at the age of 13. He would go on to commit a series of crimes, from petty theft, breaking and entering, and car theft, spending time in and out of prison during this period. In 1971, he was charged with the kidnapping and rape of two hitchhikers. Ivan faked his own death and fled to New Zealand for a year and by 1974 was arrested again for those same charges. He was eventually acquitted of this crime thanks in part to the Malat family lawyer and took up truck driving when he met a 16-year-old named Karen. They eventually got married but separated four years later in 1987 due to the severe domestic violence by the hands of Ivan. Malat, now working for the Roads and Traffic Authority, would turn to even more extreme levels of violence. In 1989, two friends from Frankston were last seen on December 30th in Sydney as they were heading off to Albury for Confest. 19-year-olds Deborah Everest and James Gibson were on a trip of a lifetime, 
having hitchhiked from Frankston to Sydney where they were to meet up with friends and then they would all travel to Albury. However, when Deborah and James arrived, their friends had already left. For Deborah, this was all new territory for her. She had never traveled far from home, let alone hitchhiked. After some persuasion from James, she approached her mother to ask for permission. At first, Deborah's mother was a little skeptic, but James assured her that as long as he was with Deborah, nothing bad was going to happen. After some thought, Deborah's mother gave them her blessing. They were both excited when they reached Sydney. Deborah called her mother and told her about the harbor with a promise to send a postcard. That was the last time Deborah would speak to her mother. What happens next is all speculation, but Deborah and James would be able to tell their part of the story when their skeletal remains were found in Belangolo State Forest on October 14, 1993, nearly four years after they were last seen or heard from. James was found in a fetal position, with eight knife wounds in his back and spine, one of which would have rendered him paralyzed. The others would have penetrated his heart and lungs. Deborah's story would only come from nightmares. She was savagely beaten. Her jaw was broken. She had two major skull fractures and knife wounds to her head and back. It is suggested that Malat would stab James first, rendering him paralyzed, helpless, and still alive to hear the horrors of Deborah being beaten, raped, and stabbed. Malat would then return to James and repeatedly stab him in the back to deliver the death blows. They were the third and fourth victims to be found. What's good, everybody? This is Dave. I'd like to invite you to become a serial holic by joining Patreon. Lots of great perks are available, including a free gift, exclusive chat group, monthly AMAs, and much more depending on the tier you select. Join me now by going to patreon.com backslash the serial holic. That's patreon.com backslash the serial holic. Thank you all for your continued support. Now back to the episode. Three German natives would go missing within a year's time in 1991. First, Simone Schmeidel, 21 known as Simi to her friends, would disappear on January 20th, 1991, as she was on her way from Sydney to meet her mother in Melbourne. She was flying in from Germany to join Simone for a camping holiday. When a friend advised Simone on the dangers of hitchhiking, Simone presented a tourist brochure that said hitchhiking is safe and all Australians were warm and friendly. I think it's safe to assume that this brochure is no longer in publication. Then, 21-year-old Gabor Nuzbauer and 20-year-old Anya Habshid departed the Backpackers Inn in King's Cross on December 26, 1991. Their plan was to hitch from Sydney to Adelaide, South Australia, then to Darwin, Northern Territory, with a quick stop in Asia before heading back to Germany. The last person to hear from them was Gabor's mother, who said she received a call from him mentioning how difficult it was to sleep in the sweltering Australian heat. Their stories would be told respectively on November 1st and November 4th of 1993 when their remains were found in an area of a clearing along a fire trail. Simone was discovered to have received at least eight stab wounds, two of which would have severed her spinal cord, and the rest puncturing her heart and lungs. There was clothing nearby, but it did not belong to Simone. This led to the discovery of Gabor and Anya in shallow graves nearly 50 meters apart. Gabor was shot in the head six times, and Anya had been decapitated. Despite an extensive search, her head was never found. Simone, Gabor, and Anya 
were the fifth, sixth, and seventh victims found. They may all still be missing to this day if it weren't for those joggers on September of 1992, who came across one body, and a day later, another, of both 21-year-old Caroline Clark and 22-year-old Joanne Walters. English natives Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters had met at a youth hostel in Sydney. They became fast friends and had made plans to travel together to see Ayers Rock in the Northern Territory and the Western Australian Desert, but first, they needed money. They decided on getting jobs picking fruit in Victoria before continuing their travels. They were seen just south of Sydney, asking for directions to the Hume Highway, and then vanished. When they were found, the scene was horrific. Joanne was found with 14 stab wounds, nine in her back which would have paralyzed her, one time in the neck, and four times in the chest. Caroline was shot in the head ten times, with each shot appearing to be strategically placed, which led police to believe that she was used as target practice. Caroline and Joanne were the first and second victims found. The news of the backpacker murders made national headlines, and soon, the story spread across the world. Which brings us back to Paul Onions. Now in England, Paul heard the story of the bodies found in Belangelo Forest. Recalling his own experience, he decided to follow up with the police in Australia. With only the name Bill and the Nissan Patrol he was driving, police eventually turned their sights on the Malott family. First it was Bill Malott, and then they learned that their brother Ivan had sold a Nissan Patrol shortly after the discovery of Joanne and Caroline. It was learned that Ivan had used his brother's name to get jobs, register vehicles, and apparently, to introduce himself to hitchhikers. Paul was flown in to view a lineup and pointed to Ivan Malat as the man he encountered back in January of 1990. Police used this information to get warrants to search a number of Malat family homes, where they found 24 weapons, four of which were used in the murders. They also found numerous items belonging to backpackers that were given to family members as gifts. Ivan Malat was arrested on May 24, 1994, first for the kidnapping and assault of Paul Onions, then with charges for the seven backpacker murders. He was given seven life sentences for the murders, as well as six years each for the attempted murder, false imprisonment, and robbery of Paul Onions. After spending the last two decades at a supermax prison, Ivan Malat is currently living out his last moments of life at the Prince of Wales Hospital due to terminal throat and stomach cancer. At the time of this writing, police are pushing to speak with Malat one last time before he dies in hopes that he will confess to a string of murders that date back to 1971. These unsolved cases include Karen Rowland, 20, was last seen alive on February 26, 1971. She was supposed to pick up her sister to attend a party in a nearby town when it was decided at the last minute that her sister would ride with her fiancé. When Karen didn't show up to the party or arrive home later that evening, she was reported missing. On May 13th of that year, human remains were found at the Air Disaster Memorial. The victim was discovered lying on her back with her clothes pulled down past her knees. 
Because of decomposition, the cause of death could not be determined, but her identity was confirmed as Karen Rowland. Malat's Connection The day after her disappearance, on February 27th, Malat bragged to co-workers that he killed and buried someone in the bush. Student nurses Robin Bartram and Anita Cunningham were hitchhiking from Melbourne to Bowen to visit Robin's mother on July 4, 1972, when they went missing. In November, a body was found under a bridge along the Flinders Highway, which turned out to be Robin, naked from the waist down, and shot in the head twice with a 22 caliber rifle. Anita has never been found. Malat's connection? Same M.O. and caliber rifle as the Belangelo killings. 18-year-old Gabrielle Janke and 16-year-old Michelle Riley went missing on October 6, 1973, when both were last seen entering a taxi. A week later, Gabrielle's remains were found along the Pacific Highway at the bottom of an embankment. Ten days later, on October 23rd, Michelle's remains were discovered along the side of Mount Tambourine Highway. Both were bludgeoned to death and their clothes pulled down. Malat's connection? Their clothes were arranged in a fashion similar to his other victims. Leanne Goodall, 20, was last seen alive on the afternoon of December 30, 1978, at the Star Hotel in Newcastle. She was to attend college classes at Newcastle Technical College when she disappeared. Leanne has never been found. Malat's connection? He was known to stay at numerous hotels throughout the region during his time, with the Star Hotel as his most frequent. In April of 1979, Robin Hickey, 18, left her home in Swansea as she was scheduled to meet her netball teammate at the Belmont Hotel. Robin never made it and she was never seen again, alive or otherwise. Malat's connection? He was staying at a hotel near her place of employment at the time of her disappearance. Another Swansea disappearance occurred around the same time, on April 20th, 1979, when 14-year-old Amanda Robinson was seen for the last time getting off a bus after a school dance. Malat's connection? As in the case with Robin Hickey, Malat was staying at a hotel in the area. Of course, these are just a few of the numerous open cases the police would like to talk to Malat about, but as with the other cases, he will most likely deny any involvement. There has been rampant speculation throughout the years that Ivan Malat had an accomplice. Most believe it to be one or more of his brothers, as they were found in possession of items belonging to the victims. There was also a lock of hair that was found in the grasp of Joanne Walters, and initial testing shown that the hair didn't belong to either Joanne or Ivan. However, police have conducted numerous extensive interviews with a number of family members, friends, and acquaintances of Ivan Malat, and all have since been cleared. Police also saved six strands from the initial lock of hair, and with advanced technology, it is now known to be that of Joanne. So the case against Ivan Malat is closed. There are no other suspects, and any conspiracy theories will fall short of facts. However, the Malat name wouldn't fall too far off the police's radar, as in November of 2010, Matthew Malat, Ivan's nephew, murdered his 17-year-old friend in the very same forest. But that is a story for another time. This episode of The Serial Holic was written and produced by me, Dave Jari. Please follow me at theserialholic.com where you can read my profile, connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and chat with me on Messenger. While you're there, check out the Serial Holic store where you can find great Serial Holic merch. As always, stay tuned for more episodes, and thank you for listening.